I got to tell you, I had a completely different reaction to that song today. I came in, saw that Lee requested that song, and so as a drummer, I want to know what I'm playing. I've heard the song a million times, but I got to hear it again. And so I listened to it, and I said, forget drumming, I need to worship this morning. So just in case you didn't hear anything, besides the annoying drums, evidently, let, let me help you understand what that song just said. It says, all, my wor all the worries of this world, I lay them at your feet. What's that mean? It means, and I surrender every anxious thought for perfect peace. Your perfect peace. All those worries, I put them aside for the peace that he offers. All the loved ones I hold dear, all my hopes and dreams and all my fears, I choose to trust your name in everything. will take you at your word. Jesus, you have taken hold of me. All my life is in your hands. You are my strength. In the beautiful chorus, I will look up, for there is none above you. I will bow down to tell you that I need you. I will look back to see that you were faithful and I'll look ahead believing that you are able have you done that today have you looked up to worship him have you bowed down because of your great need for him can you look back and say, God, you were faithful. And then trust as you look forward. Believing that he is able to do great things in your life. If you haven't done those things, you're never going to be able to understand what he actually preached about in his sermon. If I could summarize the Sermon on the Mount, I think the one thing we need to grasp from it is what does love require of you? What does love require of you? I didn't get time to put the scriptures in the PowerPoint, so we're going old school. You're going to have to actually, you know, get out that thing called a Bible and look at the words. Um, there's one in front of you. If you didn't bring your Bible, if you have your phone, you probably have the Bible everywhere you go. So pull out your app and you can look on your phone. Follow along with me. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Starting in verse 33. Jesus says again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, 
for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is foot it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black, or grow for that matter. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Either yes or no. The honesty of a person is grounded in the covenant that God made with Israel. He simply said, these are the rules. You either decide to follow them or you decide to break them. There's no in-between. It's either yes or no. If you agree to follow them, you have one option. To follow them. It's not that Jesus is against oaths being made. However, the reality was people were not being true to what they said they would do, thus failing to uphold their oaths. Due to this, Jesus says that oaths should not even be made. It is better to just not make an oath than to make one and not follow through with it. I don't know about you, but I think the majority of us here, including myself, have said, yeah, I'll do that. And you haven't done it. And we haven't done it. Would you agree with that? Okay. What if when we said yes to something, we didn't see it as saying yes to an individual but rather we were saying yes to God. That when we break something that we say we're going to do, it's not a violation against that person. It's a violation against God. Because as a follower of Christ, if we say, yes, I'm going to do that, and you don't do it, guess who it makes it look bad? The person you claim to follow. People were making oaths, and they were making them by heaven and by earth, by Jerusalem, and by your head. Today, these sound similar to something like this. I swear on my mother's grave. I swear to God. I swear on my life. So how many of us have reburied our mother over and over and over again? How many of us have made God out to be a big liar? How many of us have actually killed ourselves because we said we were going to do something and we gave our life's value on top of it but didn't follow through? Jesus is calling us to something greater than just simply if you can't do it, don't say yes. It is not, it's bigger than that. 
You see, if we can't take our commitments to each other seriously, how will we ever take our commitment to Jesus seriously? In this next section, starting in verse 38, we're going to look at the most important underlying message, and and I don't want you to miss this, and it's that the kingdom of God is not about your rights. The kingdom of God is not about your rights. It's about something bigger and greater than that. So he starts out in verse 38, and he says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Behind every attempt to define justice is a standard that has been set. For the United States, it's the Constitution. For England, it was the Magna Carta. Justice then is used for conditions and behaviors that conform to the standards or the laws at work in each particular society. There is a social history and a theological answer behind society's standard of law. The U.S. got its laws from England. England got them from Europe. And Europe got them from Rome and Greece. Guess where Rome and Greece got their things from, their laws from? Well, part of it was from the Babylonians, the Code of Hammurabi, which literally was an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. The Torah, which is the first five books in our scriptures, which was known as the Law of Moses, ready to memorize every single one of these? All 613 of those babies. You think love your neighbor as yourself and love God above all else is hard. 613. Learn them all because you need to obey them all. You don't. You're Gentiles, so you're good. The main element of the law in both social and theological worlds is the punishment being measurable by the same standard. Punishments are, are to be equal to the crime. In Exodus, or sorry, expressions of this can be found in Exodus 21 and Leviticus 24 and Deuteronomy 19. These are expressions of the law. We see that one thing is clear. Justice requires retribution. However, it is limited but equal to the original injury. This principle of equal retribution curbs violence and it prevents vengeance from spinning out of control. So if someone wronged you, by killing your donkey, you had one option of retribution to kill their donkey. If you went above and beyond that, you 
you were guilty, not the offender. But then Jesus steps into legal history. Instead of the requirement of retribution, Jesus reveals that grace, love, and forgiveness can reverse the dangers of retribution and even more, create an alternative society that is better than the first one. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it this way. He said, evil will become powerless when it finds no opposing object, no resistance, but instead is willingly born and suffered. Evil meets an opponent for which it is not a match. Evil cannot overpower love. Evil cannot overpower grace that is extended from somebody who in our humanness says that person isn't worthy of grace and forgiveness. So let's look at how Jesus kind of breaks down this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. He goes on, and in the first part of verse 39, he says, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. What? Don't resist an evil person. If somebody comes to you and they're evil, let them be evil. Ouch. Jesus uses the same expression expression for those who treat others unjustly as an evil person, which is also the same word he uses in Matthew 5.37 for from the evil one. So literally, somebody who acts evil is literally acting from the place of the devil. In each instance, Jesus advocates grace beyond retribution and expectation. He does not advocate passivity, but active generosity that deconstructs the system because of the presence of the kingdom. Oh, did you just hear that key word in there? Oh, it's a great word today. You know, we, we love to throw it around, this whole, let's deconstruct something. We're going to deconstruct your thoughts on what it means to be a Christian. We're going to deconstruct racism. We're going to deconstruct your white privilege. We're going to deconstruct your idea of human sexuality. So what does Jesus say? Jesus says, active generosity deconstructs a system because of the presence of the kingdom. Remember what the kingdom is not about? It's not about your rights. What is the kingdom about? It's about grace, love, and forgiveness. He goes on in the second part of verse 39. He says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. 
we read that and we're like, are you kidding me? If somebody slaps me, I'm going to haul off and hit them back. Because our idea of um, you hit me, I'm going to go above you. So if you slap me, oh, I'm coming with the full fist. But Jesus says, no, turn to them the other cheek. What in the world does that mean? I'm glad you asked because it's really cool. He specifically mentions the right cheek. Why would he mention the right cheek versus the left cheek? Because there's significance behind it. If someone slaps a person with their open right hand, they will strike the other person's left cheek, which incurred a penalty of 200 silver coins. If a person took the back of their right hand and hit someone on their right cheek, they would incur a penalty of 400 silver coins. What Jesus says is to forego the financial gain that you would get. That you are legally entitled to. And accept the insult without responding. You see, because when someone took the back of their right hand and they smacked you on the right cheek, it was the biggest insult they could give to you. What they said was, you are inferior. It is typically what slave masters did to slaves. They put them in their place. You're below me. Listen to me. So why wouldn't the person just use their left hand to slap the other person's right cheek? Because there was things you just don't do. Remember there were things in that culture that were kind of a different than our culture today. This is a culture that placed a high value on things that were clean and unclean. A person being left-handed was actually very rare. The majority of people were all right-handed. And so that means they did all of the clean stuff with their right hand. If they were going to shake someone's hand, it was their right hand. If, if they were going to put their arm around someone, it was with their right arm. If they were going to, you know, be nice to somebody, it was with the right arm. If they were going to write, it was with the right hand. Because the left hand took care of business. After you took care of business, if you get what I'm saying, you, you took care of number two with this hand. It was unclean. So you didn't use this hand even to slap somebody. You just didn't do it. So taking this into consideration, the left hand is not an option. So Jesus says to turn the other cheek, which since you are already struck on the right cheek, would mean the other person would have to use their open 
right hand. But if they would take their open right hand and they would smack your left cheek, would be to say that you are an equal to me. Do you get what he's saying? He's saying to the person, if they slap you on your right cheek, offer them the left. Because their only option to strike you on the left cheek is to say, you're of equal status to me. Which is the exact thing they did not want to do. But by offering the other cheek, they were also offering grace to that person. Because they knew that they weren't going to make them an equal. But you were saying, I love you in spite of what you just did to me. I'm going to show you grace in spite of what you just did to insult me. He goes on, verse 40. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well person's robe was used as a cover in a sleeping blanket. It was also prohibited from being taken from a person for any length of time. It was legal to sue for a man's shirt, but Jesus tells us to relinquish the rights of our robe. Guess what? If somebody sued you for your shirt and you said, okay, here, take my robe too, guess what that made you? naked. How many people do you think wanted to take your robe? Nobody. But to give your robe was to say, I'm willing to sacrifice my humility so that you can have what you want. I'm willing to give up something that is important to me. It's value, it's priceless to me. But if you really want my shirt here, let me just give you my priceless possession. My robe. Remember, it wasn't just something that kept them from everybody seeing what's underneath. It was their pillow at night. It was the thing that kept them warm at night. There was nothing that was going to replace that coat. But they were willing to give it for another person's request. Verse 41, if anyone forces you to go one mile, Go with them two miles. Well, it doesn't specifically say here. It says if anyone forces you. But what they're actually he's actually referring to is the Roman soldiers. See, the, the Palestinians didn't like the Romans because they were Gentiles who had legal authority over them. 
A Roman soldier could legally require anyone 12 years old or older to carry their gear for one mile. Their gear averaged weight was about 60 pounds. Well, the emperor wanted his Roman soldiers to be strong when battle came. So he didn't want them to have to lug around all their stuff all the time. So he made it possible for them to say, hey, you, I don't care you're getting ready to go to bed. Come here. Carry my bag. We're going. You had to carry a mile. You see, their roads were actually marked a lot like our interstates. where We have every mile marked. Well, they had every mile marked. Why? Because they weren't allowed to make anyone go two miles. They could only make you go one mile. But remember, you traveled one mile from where you were. That meant you had another mile to go back. So two miles. So what Jesus is saying is not just saying go one mile. He's saying go four. didn't go that one mile. You could be flogged. See, the, the Hebrews had a law that you could not be flogged more than 40 lashes. The Hebrews, being smart people, realized um, that I don't want to miscount. Because if I miscount and I go over 40, that means I actually have to get 40 lashes now. That was the penalty if you went over. So what did the Hebrews do? They said, okay, um, we're a little smart. We're going to do 39. Because they did not want to get to 40. Just in case somebody miscounted. But guess what? The Romans didn't have a limit. It was up to the person doing the lashing to decide when they were done. So they would agree, right? So you're, you're carrying their stuff a mile, and you get to the mile marker, and Roman soldier says, thank you, you're good, you can go home now. And you're like, no, 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 you're good, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go another mile with you. What do you think the Roman soldier is going to do? Why are you doing this for me? Why, why would you do this? Like, you don't even like me. Oh, but Jesus, my Savior, he actually died for me on the cross. You know that one that you guys tried to kill and actually weren't very successful at it because three days later he rose again and he actually appeared for like 40-some days before he ascended to be with the Father? You know, he told us that if you guys ever request for us to carry your stuff a mile, that we should say that we'll take it two miles. Why would you do that? Because Jesus loves you just as much as he loves me. And this is just a small way that I can say that he loves you. That I can issue grace to you. A grace that you think you're not worthy of. But Jesus says, here it is anyway. 
verse 42, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Corey Tinboom was a Dutch watchmaker and a Christian who actually helped Jews escape the Nazi Holocaust. In her book, Reflections of God's Glory, she wrote this. She said, in Africa, a man came to a meeting with bandaged hands. I asked him how he had been injured. He said, my neighbor's straw roof was on fire. I helped him to put it out, and that's how my hands were burned. She says later, she heard the whole story. The neighbor hated him and had set his roof on fire while his wife and children were asleep in the hut. They were in danger. Fortunately, he was able to put out the fire in his house on time. But sparks flew over to the roof of the man who set the house on fire, and his house started to burn. There was no hate in the heart of this Christian. There was love for his enemy. And he did everything he could to put out the fire in his neighbor's house. That is how his own hands were burned. I can't think of a better story to illustrate loving your enemy to illustrate what Jesus is getting at and all of these scenarios that we've gone through. It's what love requires of you and of me. To do the thing that God says is valuable. Love must be defined by God's love. We learn from the behaviors of God that love is a rugged commitment to be with someone as someone who is for that person's good and to love them unto God's purpose. Jesus commands his followers to commit themselves to be with 
their enemies. Which involves proximity and attentiveness. And to be the sort of person who longs for and works for the good of your enemy. To do anything different is to hear the response, even pagans do that. So let me ask you, do the actions of yourself, of your life, represent more of what everyone else does that isn't a follower of Jesus? Or do our actions reflect Jesus? Which option is it? He says to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Is he talking about perfection? Not quite so much. You see, the chain, the charge to be perfect is not the rigor of sinlessness, but the rigor of utter devotion. Complete devotion to who Jesus calls us to be as Christians. It's not to be perfect because we can't be perfect. We're sinners. If you don't think you're a sinner, I'm kind of wondering why you showed up this morning. Because why do you need Jesus if you're not a sinner? If you're perfect, shoot, let me sit down and let me listen to you for a little bit. And I'm not up here because I'm perfect. I'm sawing off what I'm saying. But it's about our devotion to Jesus. It's about the song that we sang before this. Looking up because there is no one more worthy of our praise than God bowing down to surrender to that God who is greater than all things. To look back and see where he's been faithful in our lives, where he's been gracious, where he's forgiven us for things that we don't deserve to be forgiven for, but he's done it out of his mercy and his love. And then to look forward to know that the exact treatment that you got back there is exactly the treatment you're going to get in front of you. He's going to love you despite what you've done. But that doesn't mean we don't get punished for what we've done. We all pay a punishment. We all pay a price for the things that we've done. Asking Jesus into our life is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. The saying goes, you know, you do the crime, you do the time. Yeah, that still happens. But there's eternal forgiveness of our sins when we ask God and we repent of our sins. even to a person who's behind bars for the crimes that they've committed. They can be forgiven for those sins. You and I can be forgiven for our sins. 
begins with seeking God for who he is and for what he's done in our lives. Stand with me. If you would just reach out your hands and receive this blessing. Jesus, I thank you for a grace, a mercy, and love that we don't deserve. But you extend it to us anyway. And then you call us to do the same. Because God, in our sin, we are enemies to you. Just as those who violate us and do things against us are our enemies. And you call us to give them the same grace and issue them the same forgiveness and show them your love just as you have. God, I pray that we would come to understand what all of this means so that we can know what it means and looks like to show it to the people around us. May they see more of you and less of me. May this community see more of you and less of us. May you be glorified. May you be praised. And our life will become blessed as we realize the kingdom of God is not about us, but it's about each other. And it's ultimately about you, God. Help us to surrender to you today.